Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome to season two of Create Out Loud with me and Jen Loudon. On this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and to share the lessons, the nitty-gritty truth that they've learned along the way so that you too can have a deep and fulfilling creative life. We're kicking off season two with Oliver Berkman. He is the best-selling author debuting on the New York Times and the Sunday Times list of 4,000 weeks, time management for mortals. Oliver was a long running columnist for The Guardian magazine, writing a weekly column, and also the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. I wanted to kick off season two with Oliver because his book, 4,000 Weeks, has really, really meant a lot to me and helped me move out of more substantially some of my time anxiety, always trying to get everything done, always trying to come up with a bigger, better project, always trying to arrive somewhere where I could finally be. And that's embarrassing to admit, y'all. I've been a long time meditator, a long time studier of lots of things about being and I've taught and written about that a little bit. And yet there's something about Oliver's book, 4,000 Weeks and how he helped me embrace the truth that we can't do it all. We can never stay up on it all. It is absurd. At the same time, he helped me in even a deeper way find peace with the finitude of my life. And that's where the title comes from. We get, on average, about 4,000 weeks in our life. I like to dive right into my conversations with my guests. So we're going to go in deep. We're going to go in fast. But before we dive right in, I wanted to just read a teeny bit of the book towards the end. What would you do differently with your time, Oliver writes, today, if you knew in your bones that salvation was never coming, that your standards had been unreachable all along, and that you'll therefore never manage to make time for all you hoped you might? Perhaps you're tempted to object that yours is a special case, that in your particular situation, you do need to pull off the impossible time-wise in order to avert catastrophe. For example, maybe you're afraid you'll be fired and lose your income if you don't stay on top of your impossible workload. But this is a misunderstanding. If the level of performance you're demanding of yourself is genuinely impossible, then it's impossible, even if catastrophe looms. And facing this reality can only help. There is a sort of cruelty, Ido Landu points out, in holding yourself to standards nobody could ever reach, and which many of us would never dream of demanding of other people. The more humane approach is to drop such efforts as completely as you can. Let your impossible standards crash to the ground. Then pick a few meaningful tasks from the rubble and get started on them today. Let's dive in with Oliver Berkman. I loved your book, 4,000 Weeks, so much. You're my first male guest on the show. I'm honored. (laughs) What can you say to that? that, I'm glad that that finally men are going to have a chance (laughs) to emit their opinions on podcasts. So I want to tell you that this is... And I don't mean this, this is not a book I could have written, but it was a, it's a book I would have loved to have written because you have so beautifully fleshed out an idea that I've tried, that I've toyed with for years. I call it a human scale life. Mm-hmm. And in that case, in, in that frame, it's that we're not robots. We can't keep up. We can't do it all. But we live in this world that's kind of pushing us all the time to hack it and, you know, do it faster and do it better. And you've given such eloquent words to what we can do when we realize that we will never do it all and we'll never stay on top of everything. And what happens when you realize how brief your life is and how many hard choices you need to make. So I just wanted to thank you. This book has been really profound for me. I'm, I'm so happy to hear it. I mean, obviously, there's, there's literally nothing better. as you know, It's so when true. You, when you put things into words to, to know that, that, that that's resonated in that way. So thank you. I wanted to know when you were writing it, did you have a concern that it could tip into a sort of nihilism, you know, sort of, well, clearly I can't do it all or stay on top of it. So what the hell? Yeah, I think there's sort of two opposite concerns that I had. One is that 
the idea that like if you can't do everything why bother doing anything yes um, <laughs> and that has been sort of the risk of the interpretation of a, a bunch of things I've written I think because I'm sort of pursuing this what I hope is a kind of bracingly pessimistic view of the world that that is the that is kind of liberating and energizing and involves facing reality and as a result being freed from various anxieties yeah and unnecessary anxieties but mm. it always is the risk I suppose that it just looks like just pessimism pessimistic pessimism not bracing pessimism and then the opposite risk I think that you some people react just to that the, the title of this book 4,000 weeks you know by by thinking that what they have to do is that it's a sort of call for mm. very very stressfully and self-consciously <laughs> seizing the day and like you have to do extreme sports every weekend or something <laughs> or travel to as many countries as you possibly can otherwise what 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 was your life and I don't and it's neither of those things and we can talk about that but like I think the the reason that these are obvious risks of misinterpretation is that like yeah the this is sort of on some level this is hard stuff to face and think about and it very easily gets diverted into one of those two uh alternative lanes I suppose. I, I've been using the book in the last month I have a community and I create an audio every week that's meditation and journaling prompts and things like that and I've been using it and drawing on it. And I found myself struggling with that, like how to, and just turning to the pages of the book over and over again to quote you, because it's a fine point. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's subtle. And I think that's one of the things that we're losing in our, in a lot of our cultures right now is the ability to make those subtle distinctions. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's about staring reality in the face and being, I think, sort of liberated and, and released from all sorts of false senses of obligation and lack of self-worth and all sorts of things as a result of staring reality in the face. But I also don't think that probably any of us can completely and comprehensively stare reality in the face. Not for very and, long, know, not without a drink in my hand. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, this is, this, it's to do with sort of really following through what it means to, to have finite time. But it isn't really, it could have been another book that would be about sort of really thinking through mortality and sort of death and dying and that is not the focus here and you know i don't make any claims that that is a confrontation that i have like fully managed myself or anything i think it's just different ways into sort of sort of coaxing oneself a little bit closer to seeing things the, the way they really are because it's actually ultimately freeing to do that rather than terrifying yeah it reminds me that this place that we're exploring of that moment you can arrive in if you're a meditator where you're like, oh, I actually don't have a self <laughs> and nothing, you know, in that not those non-dual moments where everything sort of dissolves and, and it, it's scary, right? It's scary because you you come up against that, well, what does matter? And why do anything? And I got, I almost got whiffs of that when I was reading the book, that, that state that I've well, touched and run away from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, such a good parallel because it's like, it's, it, 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 it's all to do with, it's a very difficult idea to express and I may not be able to, but it's, it's to do with this idea that w what is scary about, conf about sort of letting yourself fall back into the reality of how things are is the degree to which it challenges certain illusions that we may sort of stake a lot of our security there's a there's a wonderful non-dual teacher called joan tollefson whose whose work i really have benefited from who points out somewhere that like this idea that everything is impermanent and everything is changing and everything is transient it's only terrifying so long as you don't quite carry it to its logical conclusion and, and then you sort of imagine that you are this kind of fixed permanent little self being bounced around the the the, the chaotic world like a billiard ball if you can actually start to see that that applies to the self as well, you get this kind of relaxing into mm. just the isness of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is probably getting no, too, no, too I, profound I, for the first five minutes of a podcast. But nothing, not, not at all. I can feel that. I feel that in my body. And I got a lot of that when I was in the reading the book. But I want to go back to something you said, bracing pessimists. So I've read your column in The Guardian. I followed you for a long time, reading your work. I, I always 
stunned by how we could be sort of writing and thinking about the same things, but frankly, you did it better because there's a, there's a clarity. No, and that's not putting myself down. There's a clarity about your thinking that I, that I in, benefited from tremendously. But I used to feel kind of ashamed when I would read you when you were a little bit more pessimistic than <laughs> who you've become, because there was that sort of self-help sucks, be, you know, don't like be really, what's the word I'm looking for? Be aware, be skeptical. And I would want to like wave at you and say, but, but I write self-help and I'm not like that. Don't tar me with that brush, which I, I, of course I know you weren't, but, but what I'm curious about the question I have, so I think a lot of creatives listening, right? You have been a public creative writing about ideas and you've let yourself evolve. Right. I mean, this is, Thank you. And yes, the, the, I wrote that column for The Guardian every week, pretty much, for like 12 years or something. Was it that Aston long? Astonishingly oh my large God, amount of time. I feel so old. Um, well, when, I, when I finally wrapped it up last, last year, I got yes. a couple of, I got, among the kind emails I got, I got a couple from people saying that they'd, that they'd, um, they'd grown up with it. And they meant it as a compliment. And I was like, oh my goodness, how could I have been doing anything so long that somebody else has grown up with it? It's like, I'm not that old. But no, I think, you know, Totally. I think you're absolutely right. Looking back at those earlier columns, and I try not to, um, <laughs> but I was, I definitely started this whole idea with a much more, I mean, frankly, even a cynical edge, mm -hmm. right? A sort of the idea that what would be really fun about doing this would be sort of poking fun at the worst excesses of this genre. And that is fun still to this day. But what the big surprise was, you know, that, that I, I did end up treating it as a sort of it did end up being kind of self-therapy in public. And I did end up, you know, the, the, the cynicism ended up really taking second place to seeing through a lot of the, the kind of crap to, to what was genuine and important and helpful and true in this genre. And in the end, the most interesting thing for me was like um, persuading my imagined classic Guardian reader, who was similarly <laughs> cynical and sceptical, you know, that actually there was something valuable here. That was the fun challenge rather than sort of just the, the, the takedowns. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can claim not to be writing self-help, personal development now. I wouldn't, no, you can't. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, yeah. But I, what I love is in my own creative life, there's been times when I have resisted that growth. And I, I, I think it's essential that we keep growing. And you let yourself do it and you let yourself do it publicly. Well, the really, I mean, I guess it doesn't always feel that way going through it, but yeah, I mean, partly it just keeps it interesting, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I would, uh, and this feels more like saying something about my own short attention span or something. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't spend years doing like the same, the same thing with regard to how I was sort of engaging with, with self-help. I just wanted to say, boy, that was a bumbling little self-help confession-y question. I had a better question written, but I got nervous. So I used to feel so much shame about having written, being a writer of self-help and personal growth. And when I would read Oliver's old column years ago, I would feel sort of like, oh my God, if Oliver met me, he wouldn't think I was a real writer. This is, of course, completely on me and has nothing to do with Oliver. But it really goes to the heart of a lot of what I find when I work with my writers and my creatives, either at the Oasis or in my writing programs, is that we have different stories about what it means to be a writer, whether it means what our subject matter is or um, our style or where we're published or if we're published at all. And it's a lot of noise that gets in the way. And it sounds so silly when I say it. I'm not a real writer. And this, this persisted years into my career, hundreds of thousands of copies of books sold. But we live in a culture that is hierarchical. We, our brains, actually not even our culture. Our culture is a reflection of how our brains are structured. And we're always looking for where we fit in that hierarchy. And if we have learned from our parents, from our educational system, from the New York Times bestseller list, whatever, that what we create isn't hierarchically valued, <laughs> I hope that made sense, then we are going to go through some sense of diminishment. And we can deal with that. We can deal with it through therapy, through meditation, through journaling. But if it stops us from creating, if it stops us from owning and developing into our voice and our strengths, ouch, no, I don't want that to happen. 
but it really takes a lot of encouragement and paying attention to what is interesting to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that what you create will come easily, but that there's a juice there. There's a, a curiosity that something draws you forward. And when what you're producing is hard to get to or hard to get at all the time or feels dry, or in the words of the fantasy novelist Love Grossman, who we're going to talk about in a bit, if it's very chilly, if it doesn't come alive for you or for anybody else, there's something to look at. It's not about your talent. That's bull. It's about are you tapping into that generosity and soulfulness of what you really need to create. I think I'll do a solo episode about this in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that. And also, you know, the really interesting experience I had writing this book, I'm sure you know this, but some people may not. I think some people may assume that what happens is with a book like this is that you sort of, you you have an insight, you figure something out about the world, and then you set it down between covers for the benefit of everyone else. Of course, what really happens is that the writing of the book is the process of figuring out what you think about yes, the yes. topic and of sort of living your way into it because you sort of partly just, you can only finish a book of this kind with a modicum of authenticity if you sort of change a bit. Yes. Oh my gosh, Oliver. Yes. I have said this so many times to writers I work with. The benefit and the like mind bogglingness of writing a book is that you aren't the person who can write the book when you start it. Right, right. You become the person who can write the book by writing it. And you're like, but I don't know how to write it because I'm not that person yet. Of course you don't know how to write it. Right, exactly. So that goes, exactly. So that goes back to, you said this, this, you sort of, you didn't say this could have been a book about death and dying, but something like that. How did you, how did you come to put the parameters around the book and the material like that? Because that's something that's so hard for, for, I know all of us to go, well, it's going to be about this and not about that. Yeah, no, especially, yeah, absolutely. And I do find like, I've, I've so far written two, I've got three books. One is a collection of columns. So two books that I've written uh, as a book, book. Uh, as a book. And in both cases, I've always said to myself and to sometimes to other people that like, one is about happiness and positive thinking and the downsides of positive thinking and the benefits of embracing the negative. And one is about time and time management and productivity. But they could both have been titled like, this is my philosophy of life at this point, you know, like, uh-huh. and, and they wouldn't have, wouldn't have sold me copies that way. But, but so, so in a way, it is always just sort of finding a, finding a, a particular through line to like one's view of the world. And I think that probably is true for, most kinds of books maybe not maybe there are certain kinds of I don't know historical nonfiction that don't work that way but and so with this book it was uh, you know it was really figuring out that all the different things I seemed to be really drawn by in my columns and elsewhere did have this sort of time element in common but then very swiftly realizing that like literally nothing in human existence doesn't have a time element so it was going to get very difficult very quickly (laughs) those are those moments when it spirals quickly out of control and you're like oh my god i'm writing an encyclopedia (laughs) yes no exactly exactly and you can also get into this very strange mindset which i think i did for several months at a time of imagining that a book like this needs to be comprehensive in a sort of textbooky fashion Mm -hmm. right that you need a chapter on all the different areas of the topic and it's like I was very much helped by great editors in this uh, regard, pointing out that no, it, the book has to be like a sequence of readable sections that are true and useful. You know, it does not matter if it's not a textbook about uh, time. Anyway, so I guess I, I guess the, 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 the closest thing I got to a lens in the end was sort of personal time management and productivity. This question of like, how do you organize time on the level of the day to get things done and build a meaningful life so in that sense it was excluding you know organizational perspectives it excludes a whole sort of social political perspective which I do mention because I think it needs Mm -hmm. mentioning but like Mm -hmm. obviously many of the problems to do with time pressure in our society today are best resolved at the level of 
um, policy. Policy, absolutely. It excluded, I don't know, I suppose it excluded kind of aspects of time that are, well, certainly excludes like, I don't know, the science of time. People hearing I was writing this book would sometimes try to see if I was going to be writing about stuff to do with the physiology or the physics of time. And he's just like, no, no, I got to stop someone. (laughs) So it is just like, it is just like, how how do you approach the fact that you've got 24 hours today when you're going to be sleeping for some of them to think about your relationship to time on a day-to-day level that was that just eventually emerged as the as the through line and when you were putting you know in the early stages of the book when you were wrestling with it did you like what's that process like for you what does that look like do you walk a lot do you look back at your columns have you been keeping snippets of research somewhere this whole time yeah, all of those. I mean, to, the, the the most important thing maybe to say is that like my my process is like in constant evolution, right? Or change, right? So I never my process is a process. I love that Oliver just said my process is my process, and it's messy and it changes. I think there's a lot of noise in the world about what our process is supposed to be, maybe especially for writers, but if you're in another medium, you're probably nodding your head going, oh yeah, someone so-and-so just told me the other day on the internet how I'm supposed to create. But it's always going to be messy and it's always going to be changing and growing because you are. And what's important is are you noticing what works about your process and what doesn't and trying new things, experimenting and not expecting it to reach some golden place that Oliver was just talking about, which is, of course, the point of the 4,000 Weeks book, too, that our life is going to reach some golden point where we've got it all together and we're on top of it and we can make the perfect project choices. Let's give that up. Drop that. Crash it. Let it go. So I, I, I don't even, you know, I think one of the, one of the sort of things that this book emerged from was this kind of realization that I was never going to reach this time when I, this sort of hypothetical moment when I would have all my systems in place and I would, <laughs> I would be sort of just in the flow of it completely and in control of my time and feel like I was on top of everything. And then and part of that is not thinking that there is one tried and true creative process that is never going to alter so So obviously like three or four times during the whole course of this thing I would like completely redo all my files and completely stop you know this and that and you know as if I was starting uh, afresh all over again that said yeah I I do sort of have many many sort of messy digital files of scraps from from here and there I went back over all sorts of columns and saw where they could be developed and expanded. I spent a lot of time walking around Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And and then I do so I do a lot of like diagrams. I don't know why that is, but like people always saying like asking people whether they think in words or pictures and I don't I think in diagrams. Like it's all mm-hmm. flowcharts. Seeing the map of where these things fitted together that I've got like, yeah sheets and sheets sheets (laughs) that's great i do plus like really crude mind maps like that you can no one else can read (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) sounds very similar that sounds really similar actually yeah Yeah. and that's the only way um i can think at certain times in the project so there's i feel like i mean i love everything about the book but i love that you put some questions at the end for us to consider i feel like that was your like, I have to give them some things to do. I've been really philosophical. And I can imagine your editor saying, you got to give us a couple of little like to do things if we're going to put it under self-help. But I wanted to turn the tables on you and ask you these questions. Sure. In what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? Yeah, it's such a... It- it's such a clever notion to turn this back on me in this I don't context. mean it to be I'm, mean I'm at all no 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 it's not mean it's not mean I'm I'm because you know these quests I will answer but these questions emerged because for me because they were the ones that I thought I had I think I have managed to get ah. something really fruitful from so I think I know a bit more about that now than I did but but you're asking very legitimately the ways in which they there's still 
further to go in in that respect so on this question you know i think immediately of you know the long process of sort of going all the way back to university really right of sort of trying to excel in certain things and then trying to sort of excel in certain genres of journalism when and, and eventually sort of figuring out that the kind of writing that I've done in this book I think is, is much closer to what I sort of long to do which is not particularly topical and newsworthy and isn't necessarily current with events and exciting in the way that, that journalism is supposed uh, this is a garbled answer I should I should give the answer looking Oliver it's not oh, a garbled I... answer you know what it reminds me of I was teaching some writers yesterday and do you know who Lev Grossman is the fantasy writer yeah 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 do you have you read that column it's years ago when he wrote about how he wrote two novels that were fine but chilly and he thought he had to be a literary novelist and oh, yet yeah. all along he loved fantasy so while he was getting his comparative literature degree at Yale he's reading fantasy at night <laughs> <laughs> and it took him years 17 years to say this is what this is what I really love and this is what I really write I just think this is such a universal thing for creatives to let ourselves not only love what we love, but find what, what are our natural strengths? I mean, I have certainly struggled with this. So I love your answer. Yeah, no, I, I still feel like it was, I'm gonna be tough with myself though and say that okay. it, was a little, it was a little bit of a get out because I was okay. saying how, how I thought I had already made wonderful <laughs> psychological progress. And the interesting, <laughs> the interesting question is, where do I have yeah, what have you yet? That, yeah, you uh, did put that word yet that, in that question. Yeah, but wow, my mind is blank right now. I think, I mean, I think, to be honest, I think that, that you know, the, 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 the thing I write about in the book about, about this kind of felt urge to get on top of everything and to feel like you are sort of limitlessly capable of meeting all the obligations that you feel are put on you. Like, I've come a very long way, but I have not sorted that out like I'm not I'm not like at the end of that process and you know I'm I'm still I'm still sort of very often especially at the moment with you now this book is out and I seem to be getting an awful lot of emails and stuff in relation to it it's like it's 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 very tempting to slip back into that mindset of like oh I've got to somehow get through all of this so that I can sort of place a flag on the summit and say like I've 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 got on top of all the of all the stuff and, I thought that, uh, yeah, that yeah. I thought um, that exact thing when I saw that the book, you know, debuted on the New York Times, debuted on the, I forgot what the UK lists are. Sunday I'm sorry. Times. Yeah. Sunday yeah. Times. And I'm like, oh man, this is fantastic for him. I'm so happy. And then I thought, oh, that's going to be challenging <laughs> because for yeah. me, what would happen is I'd be like, I'm here. I'm where I've always wanted to be. And I could see myself totally getting caught back again in some sense of identity and specialness and then yeah. then I would just go down the rabbit hole of of that to me it's like I feel like my whole body ceases up and I yeah no I can yeah I can totally vibe with what you're saying and for me you know the old stuff that gets triggered by that I mean I'm not saying that I don't get the sort of grandiose <laughs> I'm a big deal thing I, I think that well does. you are a big deal but, well Thank you. That's not helping. But, uh, <laughs> and but, I was going to say, what's the other part of the famous quote? <laughs> You're perfect just as you are, and you could use a little use improvement. A little <laughs> but, the, but the other, but the other thing that has certainly sort of dogged me from young adulthood, and which I think I have come to terms with a lot, but it's still there, is like if you do well in something, the main, one of the main things that that has always done for me is to just like set one notch higher mm. the bar that I must now keep reaching you know mm -hmm. so it's like I could I honestly say like the the moment that I heard that news about the book being in the bestseller list I was totally elated everyone involved in the book publicist agent editor were just thrilled it was probably only about 20 minutes after hearing that news that the thought first occurred that like, wow, do I, I need to, I really hope it is there a second week because like I've got to keep that standard up or something, you know, actually it was there a second week, it was amazing, but, but like, you know, <laughs> now this, a third. I, think, I think this is this fixed mindset thing. I think yes. this, that, that Carol Dweck writes about, mm -hmm. right? I, I, one of the ways I've always responded to any kind of success in my life is thinking like, oh no, now I've got to do, now I've got to be that good 
next time and it's like <laughs> so perverse and stupid mm-hmm. but like but it's so it's thing. so i think baked into so many of us and i've worked with people before who got praise really early for their work and then stopped right and didn't do anything else because they're like i can't live up to that praise yeah. i mean we hear more about people who were hurt by you know unhelpful criticism or too sharp of criticism, but I think the opposite can happen too. Yeah. Well, good. I love that conversation. So one of the things I see a lot, speaking of people that I work with is this real fear of choosing the wrong project, this real fear uh, between different project ideas so that they get paralyzed or they get halfway into it. And then they're like, this is the wrong choice. I should have chosen that. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that? Or is there anything from writing 4,000 weeks that you would offer those creatives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a natural and understandable feeling. It reminds me specifically of an exercise I write about doing in the book where I stared at a painting for three hours because- Oh, I love that. Art historian at Harvard makes all her students do this and I decided to go meet her and do it myself. And, you know, one of the, we can talk about that, but one of the things that you definitely think within the first half hour of that is like, oh, I've chosen the wrong painting to stare at because uh, it's going to be, the commitment is, is too great. Let's come to that in a minute, maybe. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just baked in to the, the fact that we, that the, the sort of limitations that there are on our time mean that we, we have to choose not just, you know, we have to choose among things that are all super worthwhile and worth doing and i come back to that quote that i mentioned in the book from elizabeth gilbert quoting somebody else i don't think she says who it was saying that you know you think that the everyone talks about how you have to say no and get better at saying no and everyone thinks that means so that you can say no to all the things you don't want to do and focus on the things you do want to do but actually it's harder than that you have to say no to lots of things you do want to do because the number of projects that are going to draw somebody that are going to make somebody feel that they're um, incredibly um, that they're incredibly useful worthwhile uses of their time are going to exceed the bandwidth that they have to do them and then the second problem is going to kick in which is any project that is dear to your heart and that you embark on and that you let yourself be sort of vulnerable about and risk failure at is going to feel at certain stages really uncomfortable and -hmm. unpleasant and you're going to be and you're going to misinterpret that unpleasantness as a sign that you chose the wrong project when actually it's a sign that you're like at your edge uh, which is where you should be so i mean i think the the other thing aspect of that i suppose is that you know people who who because of that fear of choosing the wrong project don't get started with anything mm-hmm. and 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 i also sort of think that's something i write about and that i've known personally for sure there's a, there's a great sense of security and control in not launching any projects and in keeping them all potential mm-hmm. in thinking to yourself, like I could probably do any of these things and I'm not going to do any of them for now. And that means I'm sort of in the driver's seat. And the moment that I choose one and have to say no to the others for now, like just to switch metaphors, that's like I've, I've thrown myself on my raft onto the whitewater rapids and I don't know where it's, it's going. And to I don't have a paddle. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, I will replay that and listen to that again. That was a gem about choosing. That last little bit in particular, ouch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that one. So, I mean, I think for me anyway, understanding a lot of this has always just been the key to dealing with it right once you see that like that's going to happen whatever choice you make once you see that you're going to think you chose the wrong project whatever project you choose there's a liberation in that because you can sort of you stop thinking that something is down to your failing or your mistake and you see that it's just sort of baked into the human condition then you're like oh well all right fair enough (laughs) i mean that that's really also what the book teaches you And again, to go to that place of nihilism versus hope, there's a way that you over and over again make this point, which is that when I give up doing it all, tasting it all, reading it all, writing it all, visiting it all, loving it all, whatever, then I'm like, well, what's here now? What's actually 
I mean, that's how I took it, Oliver. Like, what's yeah. what am I actually devoted to here? In yeah. you know, and I'm devoted to Bob, and I'm devoted to my students, and I'm devoted to do you know having a really genuinely helpful conversation in this moment. And I can be here with that. I can be here with you. Where in the past. I might have been like, oh God, I can't wait to get, I gotta get over this conversation so I can go do those other things on my to-do yeah. list. But it's, yeah, and I mean, I, I think you're conveying something very close to what I think of as the sort of central spirit of this, which is like, the reason you can do that, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but the reason you can do that is because you have seen that the, that the other thing you were trying to do before is a kind of, impossibility it's like I, I mean i think this is probably the unifying if i have like one theme in my writing and stuff it's it's something like stop distracting yourself and beating yourself up about your failure to do things that cannot be done that are like making two plus two add up to five right they are not it, it's like beating yourself up for not being able to jump a mile in the air it's like it's like these are just things that are not in the human gift to do and there's a there's a quotation that I use in the very the epigraph to the book from Charlotte Jocko Beck. What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured, and I think that's just this that just sums up this notion for me that like you don't have to see it as a problem to be solved that that we are finite creatures with limited time and limited talents and limited you know all the limited legacy of where we find ourselves in in history at this moment in time you know it's like that's just it, it's just extra suffering to imagine that life can only be okay if you can sort of break out of reality yeah i guess yeah <laughs> i just i just and that to me that's why it's that's why it's bracing pessimism right because it's like it's like when these illusions die and you just sort of fall back down to the ground it's like great i'm on the ground you know it's like there's actually i'm right, basically right. okay here on the ground right right instead of constantly strenuously trying to keep myself like above the ground like a cartoon character running off a cliff or whatever you know? there's a meditation teacher i think his name is oh i'm gonna get it wrong but it's like hmm, i don't remember his name oh terrible maybe I'll, I'll i'll put it in in the aside but he has a reflection what is here now if there is no problem to solve right and I've just been loving that because it's one of those reflections that just makes you go, well, what is here? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it makes me so aware of the problem solving and the control that you write about in the book, which I think goes back to this question about create, creative projects. It's a control issue. It's this illusion that I'm going, that I can control this. I can, yeah. I can choose the perfect right project and execute it perfectly. Right. And you keep touching on that in the book in a way that I just, I never thought of myself as someone who was interested in control. I feel like I'm such a bumbler, but you made me realize, oh, I mean, I have been trying to control the pandemic. <laughs> I have been exhausting yeah. myself trying to control a global pandemic in my head, which yeah, I, I, know I mean, I think, yeah, is no, ludicrous. Well, sure, but I think it's also so natural. I mean, I think control is such a broad concept. I, I, I have all, often thought of myself as someone who's like trying to control things, but I've never been, say, you know, I really don't think I could be accused of being the kind of person who tries to like control other people. It's just, for me, it's been very sort of in a directed in that <laughs> unhelpful way. But it probably makes me slightly easier to live with, but more miserable, I would imagine. But uh, control just means, I mean, uh, the way I'm using that term anyway, yeah, it's just this, it's just this attempt to somehow sort of get outside of or on top of life and reality and feel kind of in command or secure or uh, just not vulnerable to events in the way that we are all completely vulnerable to events there's that quote i use in the book from bruce tift i don't know if you know him mm -hmm. he lives in the next town over oh you're in colorado right okay yeah. yes okay yeah. yeah yeah who talks about how much effort we put into trying not to consciously participate in what it feels like to be imprisoned and constrained by reality basically it's like we we we're because we're these material beings with minds that can project infinitely and come up with infinite thoughts and 
and sort of connect to infinity. But then here we are with our, we are with our limited time and our limited capacities. And like finding a way to sort of live with that situation is just what we're all facing in one way and or another. And it's so essential to the creative process. It's like, I remember when my many, many years ago, my no longer, but at the time my sister-in-law had always wanted to be an artist. And she finally quit her job and went to art school. And she quit art school after two weeks because they put all these limits. You have to start with charcoal only. And she was right. like, you know, and she couldn't stand the limitations. And I remember not right. being able to verbalize and it would have been inappropriate anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> like some, I don't think you should quit. I think something right. is up here that's important. I don't think this is the right decision. Of, of course. Right. No, that. and that sounds like, you know, yeah, right. People, we're all sort of railing against our, the constraints of where we are and thinking that some kind of creative practice or change of life would would make us, the, would put us into in touch with this kind of infinity. But but no, what they know at art school is you just need, you need constraints there as well. Yeah. yeah, you need constraints. Absolutely. Do you think that there's a great reset happening because of the pandemic? And do you think that part of that is rejecting this toxic productivity, this go, 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 this you can hack life. Do you think that's happening or do you think that's me being not pessimistic because I am the opposite of <laughs> basically <laughs> pessimistic. I'm trying to learn I mean, to be more basically pessimistic. Yeah, I mean, time will tell, right? But I think there yeah. is evidence that, you know, there is lots of evidence of people in these reports in the Times I read about, you know, people in fairly privileged jobs with a certain financial security, mm -hmm. but not finding them fulfilling, just walking out because if they're not going to do it now, when are they ever going to do it? And then, you know, uh, various other places, you, 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 you have a sense that this is happening. I, I think that there was this, there has been this amazing moment where, yeah, I mean, all these things that we were suddenly not allowed to do when society kind of shut down and we realized how much we missed them. And at the same time, things that we didn't have to do if we were people who suddenly were working from home and didn't have to commute or something like that, that we were kind of, that we didn't miss. So, right, there's all these kind of different kinds of shaking up of the assumptions about how time has to be spent. I quote in the book this great essay that was published on Medium by a, a guy called Giulio Vincent Gambuto, I think I'm getting his name right, who just, yeah, talked about how there's just this extraordinary sense of possibility, not because lo life in lockdown is is good. I'm not one of the people who thinks like, I wish it could continue or something. But, <laughs> but, but just that if society can change that much for this reason, like what, what can't be done? And he uses this great phrase about how like we get to like, we have this opportunity like Marie Kondo, uh, our time now, right? And decide what we let back in. What brings us joy, joy and, right, and what and what doesn't and just to become more conscious of mm -hmm. it and that's all that happens in kind of moments of epiphany like that anyway of course the question is whether any of that can be preserved as mm -hmm. sort of rolling wheels of uh normality gradually, gradually right recovered. eventually somewhere in the world right. you wrote about allowing yourself to be constrained by the rhythms of community and it's the research shows that it can make your life more meaningful and make you happier and you wrote that also it was it was ironic because you left the guardian so you could have more freedom <laughs> to you know to write this book <coughs> and, to, and to have your own time one of the things i was aware of when i was reading that though is and maybe this is because of the pandemic, I don't know, but so many of us don't find those communities. We're so, we're lonely and we don't seem to have access to those rhythms of community. Right, absolutely. And I mean- Are we, are we just not willing to be messy with humans anymore because we can do everything behind screens? Well, this was one of the areas of the, of the book that it was very important to me to include this section, but certainly it's one that, you know, again I haven't sort of perfected in my own life mm. and one where maybe that the sort of policy level of things is more mm. is more important briefly just for um, people listening or watching I mean it's this it's this idea that the pursuit of individual time sovereignty which we champion so much you know and we, everyone wants everyone's goal is to be more and more and more in control of their own time leads to this situation where 
everyone is sort of desynchronized with each other. But of course, lots of other factors lead to that too, right? So the, the great irony is if you're working for a big box retailer in a fulfillment warehouse called into shifts by that are de determined by algorithm based on sales volume, you have no freedom. That's an impossible life to try to coordinate social life and, you know, to belong to community organizations because it's so unpredictable. But equally, if you're a sort of relatively privileged, freelancy, writery, digital you know, nomad, right, right, or even just a person like, like you and me, you know, me or you, right, not digital nomads, but, but sort of setting our own agenda to a great degree. We too are desynchronized from all our similar friends because we've all got different schedules and work mm -hmm. expands to fill the time available. And suddenly it's impossible to like, even in non-COVID times, you know, to, to, to find a, an hour when three friends are all free to, to, mm -hmm. to meet for a drink. I think that, you know, a lot of this, the, the loneliness you speak of then is just due to the, the situations in which we, in which we find ourselves and, the fact that we are sort of slightly collaborating with that with that state of affairs by by seeking more and more individual time sovereignty it's a big test we have just arrived a few weeks ago me and my wife and son in this in this beautiful beautiful setting in the north york moors in northern england close to where i grew up so my parents my son's grandparents are nearby various old friends of mine are nearby that's all lovely on the other hand like we don't know anybody apart from them and at the the gate of the minuscule school that my son is attending like everyone's a stranger to me so whether i've just made all this a lot harder for myself and what's going to happen thought about I mean, that you know, <laughs> who knows on the other hand you know um i have the sense that you know my my retired parents my my friends my own age but who live up here have a slightly sort of emptier schedule they're less kind of they're not like my Brooklyn friends. So already it's obvious that it, it, it's incredibly clear that when you sort of send someone a message saying like, do you want to get together for dinner tomorrow? Like they can, because there's just a bit more looseness in their schedule. So right now I feel deeply enmeshed in community, possibly when the novelty of us arriving back here has worn off in three weeks time and no one wants to have dinner with us anymore. It'll be, it'll be different, but you know, so it, it's, 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 pluses and minuses but yeah yeah place, but, but it's a place where there is a little more ease when it comes to figuring things like that out. this piece about what happens to us and our happiness and our sense of belonging when we desynchronize from our communities or our society really hit home for me i've always thought of myself as an outlier an outsider you probably do too a lot of creatives do but I also have worked at home for 30 plus years and a lot of the rituals of life fall away and you're by yourself a lot, which is great for an introvert, but also I can see problematic. And I'm also not been a real holiday person, especially when my dad died and then mom was sick with Alzheimer's and blended family stuff. So there's been a lot of poo-pooing of things that I think really I need to embrace. I need to to figure out, I mean, our neighborhood synchronizing is one thing, but this larger sense of our culture, what would it be like to celebrate some of those holidays? But then that led me to a question of how do, how do we or where could we synchronize for our creative lives? You know, is there a festival that you could go to every year? Or is there a way you want to synchronize with some local people in person when it's safe again or outside or with masks on to to find that sense of belonging together, a rhythm of belonging that's part of something larger. Interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I'll have to report back in okay. a few months' time. Okay, maybe, I want to hear. All, all have been a terrible decision. <laughs> no, I think it'll be a great decision. Uh, Oliver, I, I really am so, um, I'm so glad I got to spend this time with you. And I'm so glad you wrote this book, 4,000 Weeks. And I have this ending question I like to ask my guests. What do you, what do you want to learn next? Hmm. Can I have like two answers? You can, all um, right. Only because I like you. Let me give you the sort of creative life answer that I think is most relevant to what we're talking about here. I mean, I, I need to learn 
completely new ways of sort of communicating this, the ideas I'm interested in and and exchanging the kind of ideas that I'm interested in exchanging with people because I feel like, you know, I've been the weekly columnist and I love writing books, but you can't sort of just do that all the time, I think. So how to sort of engage a community of people around these ideas, it sounds like I think you're probably way streets ahead of me in this kind of... Um, this kind of side of things that that is what I am really intrigued to explore further I have this email newsletter and email list but that's just very sort of nascent I don't know where that goes it's been incredibly rewarding so far just it's great in terms of the exchange of ideas and of messages and you know I, I don't know I feel like I don't think I've I think I've got lots to learn about like being a good marriage partner and a good parent I mean I guess you're always learning those things especially um, parenting but, um, yeah but I always I often think like interviews like this that should have my my wife should have like 10 minutes at the end to <laughs> the same explain thing. <laughs> how like unbearable I am in certain respects or to how much I've failed to achieve this level of calm with regard to my use of time and my anxieties and so like I I feel that's important to say so you know maybe I'm sure there's I guess that's a lifelong learning it um, is a lifelong learning that is uh, marriage is definitely the an interesting place to keep <laughs> learning. <laughs> and I, I'm very grateful for it most days. <laughs> Thank you so much, Oliver. You are delightful. And I know that you are making a, a huge difference in people's lives with this book. So you can rest in that for at least another week. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Seriously, it's music to my ears. Evidently, I need to hear it. I feel so honored to get to have these conversations with these amazing people. I really hope you'll pick up a copy of Oliver's book, 4,000 Weeks. I think you'll find it as astonishing as I did. And if you go over to YouTube, we put our videos of the podcast while we're recording. He's a really adorable. And you can see in the very beginning, I show him my book with all of its post-it notes in it. I think that's on camera, I hope. If not, you should see my book. It's full of post-it notes. <laughs> hey, so what are you gonna take away from this conversation? Maybe jot down in your journal or text a friend, share this episode with somebody, help us spread the word about the podcast. There was so much good stuff in here, but that piece about choosing Oof, I think everybody needs to hear that. So I super hope you'll share it and remember it. But maybe you chose something else to remember and take to heart and put in your creative toolkit. What matters is you take something away that helps you to create out loud. Next week, we'll be back with the amazing Amy Nzukulatatu. She is another best-selling author of the most enchanting book, World of Wonders. And we are going to talk about the role of wonder in our creative lives. You are going to love her. You can look up Create Out Loud on YouTube, and it's so worth it to see her. She's so beautiful, and she has the best earrings on <laughs> and the cutest outfit. Anyway, if you like watching as well of, or instead of listening, and if you could drop me a review wherever you listen to podcasts, oh my gosh, I would be so grateful and share this episode with one other person. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now go create out loud.